The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing September 28th, 2018. Will accusations directed at Israel over the downing of a Russian plane have implications for the Western alliance's plans for the campaign against Assad? Are alliances shifting in the wake of an expected U.S. economic collapse? Are there fundamental differences between Russian and American interventions abroad, or are the two countries merely opposite sides of the same imperialist coin? What options are there for grassroots citizens who seek peace in an increasingly troubled world? On this week's installment of the Global Research News Hour, we examine the divide between the U.S. and Russia as conflict and confrontation seem to become increasingly inevitable on a planet with shrinking resources and growing financial instability. We'll hear from Russian-American author, blogger, and geopolitical analyst Dmitry Orlov about recent military and financial developments. Then we'll hear from longtime activist Ron Riedoner about the observations he details in his expansive new book on the Russian peace threat. On this week's program, Cold War 2.0, the Russian peace threat, and America's addiction to war. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 30th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe, Akin, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of Nehiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Statistics are created numbers. The operations and manipulations are often justified by arguing they improve the data, reveal it more accurately. Sometimes this is so, but too often the manipulations are designed to boost the raw data to show the economy is doing better than it actually is, i.e. GDP and growth is better than it really is, or reduce the numbers to show the same effect, i.e. inflation is not as high as it really is, or that wages are rising for everyone when in fact they may not be for most. In Trump's UN speech, we therefore find an ironic congruence of typical Trump-imagined facts that don't really exist and official government statistics that are not lies per se, but are nonetheless distortions and misrepresentations created by the many complex, often convoluted operations and manipulations performed on the actual facts. That comes from the article, Trump at the UN, Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics, by Dr. Jack Rasmus, posted September 28th, originally appearing at the author's blog site, jackrasmus.com. In this disturbing speech, Trump also said, quote, The United States will not tell you how to live or work or worship. We only ask that you honor our sovereignty in return, unquote. So how then shall we interpret the U.S. empire's policies for war and regime change, intervention, CIA, and other foreign presence, blatant interference in other countries' domestic affairs and elections, coup d'etats in dozens of countries since 1945, and who has threatened the sovereignty of the U.S.? 
That comes from an article under the headline, Video, President Trump's Disturbing Speech at the UN. This is not the time to just laugh. By Farhang Jahanpur, posted September 27th, originally appearing at The Transnational. Washington fundamentally opposes peace, stability, equity, and justice everywhere, notions Republicans and undemocratic Dems consider anathema. Their record, especially since the rape of Yugoslavia, speaks for itself. Endless war on humanity and all sovereign independent states, wanting all nations transformed into ruler serf societies, unsafe and unfit to live in. Like many times before, Trump turned truth on its head, claiming credit for, quote, driving bloodthirsty killers known as ISIS from the territory they once held in Iraq and Syria, unquote. Just the opposite is true. Washington and its imperial partners support the scourge of terrorism they pretend to oppose. That comes from the article, Lies and Laughter, Trump's UN General Assembly Dissembling and Rage, by Stephen Lendman, posted September 26th. Trump called for international trade reforms and insisted that his main objective as president is to protect American sovereignty. He called on OPEC to stop raising oil prices and criticized China's trade practices. Trump also prompted murmurs from the crowd of world leaders and diplomats when he declared that he had accomplished more as president than almost any other administration in history. Quote, I didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay, he said. Trump praised North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un on Tuesday for his courage in taking some steps to disarm, but said much work needed to be done and sanctions must remain in place on North Korea until it denuclearizes. That comes from the article, Trump praises Saudi Arabia, Israel at UN, rejects globalism. Posted September 26th, originally appearing at Telesur. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The divide between the U.S. and Russia has been growing over the last decade, and especially since Russia's involvement in preventing an attack on Syria when the U.S. attempted to launch an intervention there in 2013. Sour relations intensified through the 2015 military intervention in Syria, the 2016 U.S. elections, the Skripal affair, and now the location of a Russian missile defense system in Syria. As U.S. sanctions are wreaking havoc in a financially unstable world, how is the global situation likely to resolve itself? Who will be the winners and who will be the losers in the ongoing Cold War? To address these questions, the Global Research News Hour reached out to a former guest. Russian-American Dmitry Orlov is a writer, blogger, and geopolitical analyst. He's the author of Reinventing Collapse, the Soviet Experience and American Prospects, as well as Shrinking the Technosphere, Getting a Grip on Technologies that Limit Our Autonomy, Self-Sufficiency, and Freedom. He joined us from his home in Moscow. Thanks so much for coming back to the show, Dmitry. Good to be with you, Michael. Now, I think the first thing uh, I wanted to bring up is some of the recent news. Uh, there was the um, recently the, the shooting down of a Russian uh, IL-20 reconnaissance plane uh, uh, by Syrian forces, but it was uh, the Russian military has argued that this is actually uh, a result of uh, Israeli actions, just sort of, I guess you'd say, shadowing that plane, and uh, it was in in response to that. 
um, incident that a number of S-300 uh, missile systems were moved into Syria. Uh, I know that there's been uh, commentary uh, by the uh, oh, the Saker, for one, has said that this is uh, a, fact, a de facto um, no-fly zone over Syria. Now, we know that the things have not been going so well up to now for uh, U.S. Uh, imperial aims in the country. I'm wondering what, uh, h- how significant this latest event is in, in the overall context of what we've been seeing. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a wake-up call for the Israelis because um, uh, Russia has been extremely accommodating uh, in everything that comes in, in when, when it comes to Israel's concern, security concerns. Uh, there is the re- realization that the rhetoric coming from Tehran uh, has been, you know, quite virulent. Um, you know, Iran is, is still um, telling itself that it has the goal of destroying Israel. Um, there is no way that Israel uh, can avoid responding to such a provocation. And the fact that there are now Iranian troops uh, close to the Israeli border uh, and that there's weapons manufacturing going on on Syrian territory is something that is a concern to them that the Russians have to allow, have to have to allow Israel to take care of its own security concerns. Uh, but uh, the Israelis have acted most irresponsibly because they gave less than a minute warning that this attack was coming. They misnamed the targets. And they misbehaved in the airspace in the sense that they couldn't have not seen this big lumbering propeller plane uh, that was of absolutely no threat to anyone. And and uh, they knew that there would be some uh, anti-aircraft fire uh, and drew it not on themselves, but on this plane. Uh, there are some other, you know, unfortunate mishaps that, that occurred which are all coming out as a result of an investigation, so it's it's still early to say. But um, um, the response was basically to, uh, you know, addressing down uh, from Russia to to Israelis saying, you cannot do this anymore. Um, And the the, the response was to to arm the Syrians with with a more up-to-date air defense system, which was probably already in place. It was just handed over. Uh, to to Syrian command. Um, I I don't think that this is a major development. I think Russia and Israel are going to patch things up. Uh, I don't think Israel is going to stop attacking um, uh, uh, stop attacking uh, things that on the ground in Syria uh, that you know actions that they see as provocative. Um, they they're very fearful of precision uh, rockets, precision weapons being built in Syria that can be smuggled into Syria or even fired in, smuggled into Israel or even fired into Israel from Lebanon or, or from Syria itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's been a, a, a long-standing uh, observation that uh, the, the U.S. Uh, drive to you know, upset uh, or uh, instigate regime change within uh, Damascus, it ain't working. And and even the balkanization project, uh, the idea of balkanizing it uh, in ways that favor the U.S., uh, uh, NATO, and and their uh, imperial uh, lackeys, if you want to put it that way, would uh, um, 
it, it seems to be in some turmoil. I mean, what what options would you say uh, the U.S. Uh, has at this point, uh, <laughs> short of a, 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 a declaration of surrender? Well, the, the, there is there will be no declaration of su- surrender. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, basically, what the U- what the U.S. does in in Syria, similar to what it does everywhere else, it generates activity. Um, it, it generates activity in order to uh, uh, be in a position to order more weapon systems, more more munitions, um, uh, basically chew through war material, uh, because that's what the the contractors require, and those contractors, military contractors, uh, finance uh, various congressional uh, election campaigns. So that that's the entire political ecosystem. And what happens on the ground is sort of a sideshow. Now, in terms of strategic objectives, uh, whatever they are, the, the U.S. definitely isn't achieving them. You know, there, there's that uh, encampment they have in in Atanf, um, in the south. There, there are a few other uh, locations uh, that uh, in the north where they're uh, playing along with the Kurds, which is poisoning their relationship with Turkey. Um, they, they did completely destroy Raqqa and made absolutely no effort to, to clean it up afterwards. So they're still rotting bodies there buried under piles of rubble. And it's been many months. Um, you know, it's a, basically a humanitarian atrocity that they perpetuated in Raqqa. But they're not achieving anything except wasting money and, and uh, war material. Uh, and I think that that is actually their goal at this point, is to generate military activity. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, we're not just talking about uh, imperial control of resources and, and strategic uh, areas, but also that 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 idea of just using uh, military activity as a way of generating money for the uh, the major uh, military contractors, defense contractors, and affiliated interests. Um, which which kind of brings me to another. Uh, dynamic in play. Uh, well, the U.S. military, it's huge, at least in terms of the amount of money it spends, more than uh, about 10 times, more than the next 10 countries combined. And, uh, you know, Russia doesn't spend nearly as much, but yet they're, uh, they're uh, much more strategic uh, and uh, efficient in the way they utilize and, and spun, spend money on their military. Yes. In terms of... Uh uh, purchasing parity, um, it's uh, one Russian dollar to 10 uh, U.S. dollars of defense spending. That's, you know, really the ra- ratio. Uh, the U.S. has to spend 10 times more than Russia to to get the same or inferior results. Um, there are a lot of reasons behind this. Hmm. To, so in terms of that parity, would you say that Russia is effectively now a rival of the U.S.? Militarily, can they counterbalance the U.S. Uh, in every realm? Oh no, absolutely not. Basically, Russian posture—the Russian posture—is to uh, make sure that uh, the U.S. and NATO uh, have absolutely no plan whatsoever to attack Russia or to attack Russia's allies. That you know, perish the thought. But other than that, Russia's posture is completely defensive and American posture because there's no need to defend the American homeland from anyone. Nobody's planning to attack the United States is purely offensive. Uh, now, uh, 
it takes 10 times more resources to attack than to defend. That is uh, generally understood as a principle. Um, and, and so the U.S. is trying to uh, pursue a policy that, that really leads it to, uh, you know, not any kind of a military victory or even a standoff. It leads it to national bankruptcy. Nothing more. Well, what about the uh, the economic dynamics that have been playing out lately? Uh, the the sanctions that are being uh, leveled against Russia and uh, and Iran, and I'm wondering how that's playing out within the EU because the US is allied with the European Union, but European Union interests are being affected by uh, by sanctions, uh, and so I'm wondering, you know, are we seeing a uh, a potential breakup of that alliance, while there are efforts, or there have lo- there have you know, historically been efforts to break up an alliance between Russia and China, I- I'm wondering if um, you know which of those alliances is more fragile, if I could put it that way. It's really hard to 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 figure out what is going to snap first. There's definitely a huge amount of tension between Washington and and the European Union. There is a huge amount of tension building up within the European Union itself because the whole uh, liberal juggernaut that started bringing in unlimited quantities of uh, of migrants uh, into Europe, you know that that is definitely running running into a huge huge problem, huge conflict that is internal to the EU. Now the relationship between the EU and and Russia has not really been all that badly. Uh, damaged by Washington and by these sanctions that the Europeans have gone along with willy-nilly, uh, many of them complaining, all you know, all along the way, and and definitely in terms of, for instance, energy uh, cooperation between the EU and Russia is back on track because there are really no other options that the EU has uh, to supply itself with natural gas other than to do business with with Russia, and at this point that means also to circumvent the Ukraine because nobody really wants to do business with the Ukraine anymore. It's, it's, it's basically a, you know, a sort of poison chalice, chalice at this point. Um, you know, in, in terms of what the sanctions have done to the Russian economy, yes, they, co- they, they cost a, a, a couple of percent of GDP growth, uh, but the beneficial effect of those sanctions uh, is, is often um, underestimated. It, it really woke Russia up to the fact that it has to become self-sufficient in many areas. And it has become self-sufficient in, in numerous areas and is working very hard to achieve self-sufficiency in more areas and to find new trading partners that aren't going to sanction them. So um, the sanctions have really woken up uh, the Russians to the fact that the Americans are ne- not their friends, will never be their friends and have prompted them to act accordingly. Mm. The uh, the U.S. Uh, economic situation, they have an unsustainable uh, debt crisis. Uh, it doesn't look like they're ever going to be able to crawl out of it. They don't have the ability to uh, maintain the, uh, the their, their current trajectory. I mean, it, we're, we're probably looking at another uh, stock market crash uh, Probably sooner rather than later, and I, I think the writing is on the wall in that regard. That that's bound to affect the way the U.S. comports itself in the world, even though they won't say it out loud. I mean, you suggested that earlier. So when it comes to that, the economic dimension, and and other countries are are 
no doubt aware of the unsustainability of the U.S. economic situation. So, so how do you see things playing out? Are they going to uh, are things going to kind of come apart in a disastrous way, or are there going to be sort of sneaky, uh, you know, people moving away to that uh, that secondary pole, the the Russia China. Uh, Iranian access, if you will, economically, how how are our people, how are the competitor nations going to respond to what appears to be uh, the inevitable uh, demise of the U.S. and the collapse of the U.S. economy? Well, uh, I think the writing has been on the wall for a really long time now. Uh, It's just a question of when, and nobody knows the answer. And the big task in front of many countries in the world right now, and it's a huge task, uh, uh, it's de-dollarization. You have something like uh, uh, 180 different currencies that all use the U.S. dollar to trade with each other, that, that all have price lists and dollars that, that uh, convert to dollars in order to trade with each other and then convert back um, and, and use the fact that, you know, there's this gigantic pool of dollar liquidity that they can tap into anytime they need need to. But the downside of that is that anytime anyone trades using the U.S. dollar, they become part of the, the U.S. jurisdiction and become subject to American sanctions. And it used to be that, that the U.S. was a sort of a good, good citizen, good global citizen, allowing uh, itself to benefit from the fact that everybody uses the U.S. dollar. You know, there's huge benefit to the U.S. But in return, it pretty much allowed people to use the dollar as they wished. But now, uh, with with Trump specifically, with his trade policies, the U.S. requires other countries to use the dollar in the in America's economic interest and to their own detriment. And that's when everybody wakes up and notices. But then... The task is to de-dollarize, and it's a huge task because China is not really ready to replace the dollar with its own yuan. Uh, nobody really expects China to step in and, and play such a huge role so quickly. China g- generally takes a long time to make such adjustments and takes many small steps, um, and, and nobody else really wants to do it either. So we're in a period where there'll be lots of half measures uh, there will be a lot of uh, forced measures taken if the situation deteriorates suddenly. But I think that there's a really good chance that there will be a lot of damage to international trade and to international supply chains if this dollar liquidity evaporates. Because the only the only two ways, and it's actually one in the same way, out of this uh, crisis that the U.S. has put itself into with its completely unsustainable uh, rate of growth of its indebtedness is either uh, a deflationary collapse or an inflationary collapse or some combination of both, so that you have you know falling prices on some some things and and uh, 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 hyperinflation in in other areas. Uh, there'll be huge economic distortions, uh, and and the rest of the world will simply have to because they have a hoard of dollars. They use a hoard of dollars. They to, in order to trade with each other. Uh, they, they, they have uh, contracts signed that are all in dollars. So how do you de-dollarize that? It's a gigantic task. Hmm. Yeah, um, I'm kind of, uh, kind of interested in your take on uh, like the way 
the, the media messaging around these realities because they, they seem to be extremely diversionary. I mean, there's the longstanding, uh, um, uh, well, the, 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 the Russiagate, the whole, the, the attacks on Trump uh, that uh, we've been seeing in an ongoing way. I mean, there's certainly a lot of uh, ridiculousness around that. And particularly the uh, what we've seen recently the the, the Skripal affair and uh, you know the this the, what they're trying to explain that there's there's these, these two uh, ex uh, the, these two spy, uh, this uh, spy was uh, somehow assassinated by uh, these two uh, Russian agents that uh, and that, that that story seems to have been falling apart uh, the more you look into it, although they, they, they seem to be like uh, Theresa May and uh, their, her allies seem to be doubling down on this uh, failing narrative. What is your take about the way the media continues to, 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 continues to pro- propel this uh, mythology about Russia and uh, you know, and, and its uh, onerousness to on the, its its toxicity on the world stage. I mean, is this uh, is this a manifestation? Are you seeing that uh, a manifestation of your uh, longstanding thesis about collapse, collapse of empire? Well, I think that basically the West, uh, the collective West, has run up against Russia as a sort of immovable object that is completely indigestible, unprocessable for it. Uh, and and coin, coin, coinciding with that is just a catastrophic decrease in the quality of Western leadership. Whether you look at Trump, whether you look at uh, Theresa May or, or Emmanuel Macron or, or just about all of this recent crop of European leaders, with few exceptions, um, they're, they're all just absolutely incapable of being even coherent, never, never mind formulating some, some strategy or, or plan. They're failing, uh, and everybody sees that they're failing, and, and they can't stop themselves. They, they, they just go on with whatever narrative they concocted. With the Skripal affair, it, it's preposterous throughout. There's absolutely no evidence behind the, the British story, and there are a lot of facts that are just uh, you know completely contradictory and negate the narrative that that has been voiced, and and so the Russians are are happy to sit, basically sit back and and ignore all of that. Um, they know that there will be sanctions. These sanctions have nothing to do with chemical weapons. You know they have they have nothing to do with with anything except one fact. Russia is sitting on a stockpile of energy resources that will last it for hundreds of years. And it has enough to export for as long as it sees fit. But really, it wants to become independent of energy exports. And that is a big problem for the West, because the West has absolutely no strategy to become independent of Russian energy imports. There's nothing they can do about it except basically do whatever Russia is willing to, to, to do for them, to, to basically agree to cooperate with Russia. And, and so, so they're, they're basically jumping up and down mad. Um, they, they, they have this problem that they can't solve. They can't attack Russia militarily. 
they, they're trying to attack Russia economically, but that's not working. They're trying to isolate Russia, and as a result of that, Russia is strengthening ties with countries all over the world. You know, the SEO organization is now, you know, almost half of world's GDP, almost half of the world's population, and it's a security organization that is that Russia is part of. Um, you know, they, they try to stage little provocations like, you know, the little training exercises along the Russian border in the Baltics that's supposed to frighten Russia. You know, if NATO attacked Russia, uh, Russia would have them arrested. Um, it, it, it doesn't really make sense as, as a plan, but it makes sense as an internal narrative, something that these incompetent Western leaders can tell their own people. Dimitri, I think we've got to leave it there, but I, I really want to thank you. I really value your uh, unique out-of-the-box thinking uh, that, uh, and the insights that you share with us and our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. We've been speaking with Dimitri Orloff, a Russian-American engineer, writer, and blogger. Uh, you can uh, see more of his articles at the site cluborlov.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. To put the discord between the U.S. and Russia in a historical context, the Global Research News Hour got in touch with Ron Riedener, an anti-war solidarity and radical activist since 1961. He's lived in many countries and worked as a journalist, editor, author, translator for four decades, including for Cuba's editorial Jose Marti and Prensa Latina from 1988 to 1996. He's the author of the 2018 volume, The Russian Threat, Pentagon on Alert. Ron Riedener joined us by Skype. From Denmark. Why don't we start with the title itself? Uh, could you identify, clarify exactly who or what is under threat? Right. Uh, well, what is under threat is peace. Uh, the United States uh, does not make money uh, from peace. And uh, of course, it's not just the United States, the, the international weapons industry. Uh, weaponry uh, is, a, a, is a really a major, major, major uh, profit-making business, and uh, that includes, uh, you know, of course, the aircraft industry, uh, co- uh, as well as guns and rockets and and oil. So, um, Yeltsin, uh, in the years of Yeltsin, he was perfect for the United States. They uh, basically stole Russia's sovereignty, and they could do pretty much what they wanted. They helped him uh, overthrow the parliament and murder 200 people in 1993. They helped him uh, with a lot of. Uh, the billions of dollars win the, an election in 96. And uh, Putin is a threat. I mean, Putin supports capitalism. He is not a communist. He is not a threat to world peace. He has not invaded anybody. Um, but he wants to retain sovereignty. The United States refuses to allow any country, including the one I live in, Denmark, to uh, ha- make its own rules, to have its own sovereignty. So that's, that's what is at threat. Mm. Of all of the events that you could have mentioned, you, you opened the book. Uh, first of all, you talked about the, uh, the cosmonaut Yuri Gregarin, and, and then you matched that with the, uh, the, the invasion of Cuba and uh, right. the following Cuban Missile Crisis. W- what was specific about those events that you felt the need to open the book in that area? Right. I don't know how I had – I think it's basically an ebony. I didn't – I can't recall exactly how it came to me, but it was I think it's a perfect opening because 
at this that day that Yuri Gargarin uh, went around the world <clears throat> was the same day that the United States launched uh, uh, ships from uh, Guatemala and Honduras to invade Cuba. And it was the same day that Kennedy den uh, denied that they were going to invade Cuba. Um, and so, you know, three days from that date of, of Gagarin's tour around the world, uh, you know, the, the war started, the invasion started. Uh, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, sent him around, uh, Yuri around for two years on a peace mission. You see him often in many countries uh, holding a, a peace dove, you know, it's like Picasso's peace dove. And that's, you know, that's in my book. Yuri was was the epitome of, of a kind human being who, uh, you know, who, who, who simply represents, in my mind, uh, what the Russian people uh, want and what they stand for. They in no way won another war. They suffered more than anybody else in the entire world for a whole century of wars. They lost more people and more property than any other country uh, from 19, 1904, you know, with the first little war against with Japan. So they know what war is better than, unfortunately, the Americans, the U.S. Americans. And uh, so for me, it was a tremendous contrast to show um, how the Russians want peace and the United States wants war. Mm. Now, you also, of course, mentioned the... Um the situation in Cuba uh, around the the time the, uh, you know, the the Cuban Revolution and then there was the, uh, the the Bay of Pigs invasion and you provide us a lot of details about that and that was followed in '62 by the, uh, the those events around uh, what's now called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right now, one thing that did grab me about it is you provided a very detailed description of what was going on on the Russian side, and you particularly single out an officer named Vasily Akripov, and yeah. uh, you basically say that he saved the world. I, I, right. I, if you wouldn't mind, could you maybe give us a a, a quick breakdown of, of those that aspect right. of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Right. Well, this was a year after Yuri, a year and a half after Yuri's uh, tour around the world. Well, he was still on, a, uh, on his peace tour when this happened. And in October of 62, uh, four Russian submarines were headed towards uh, Cuba. Uh, and they each had uh, one, one nuclear weapon. Uh, the, Kennedy launched this uh, blockade in international waters against all international laws. Uh, and, of course, he was trying to do that to prevent the Pentagon and the deep state, that's to say the CIA, from literally invading the Soviet Union and Cuba with nuclear weapons. So I will give it to Kennedy that he did not want a nuclear war. But um, it was Khrushchev's decision to back out. Uh, but first it was uh, Arkhipov, who was one of three captains, and he was the decisive one who refused to launch this mis missile when they thought the Russians thought that they were being attacked by the United States, which was dropping from their many ships. Uh, what do you call these death charges, depth charges? They, they could not surface. They were running out of oxygen. They had no communication. They could not talk to uh, Russia, uh, Moscow. And they really they literally thought several of them literally thought that the United States had begun a nuclear war. So there was an argument between some of – well, I don't know how much of an argument, but there was at least a discussion, should they fire it or not? And, uh, 
And Arkhipov was the decisive vote to say no, and they actually turned the ship around and went back to Moscow. So we have to also understand that in the context that the CIA, well, not just the CIA, the, the chiefs of staff, the joint chiefs of staff with the uh, number one leader, uh, General Limits, had a program called Operation Northwoods in which they were to do what they're doing in Syria today with so-called serene gas launched by Assad. They were going to invade their own base on Guantanamo, kill a few people, including Cuban refugees, uh, and blame it on Castro to give them an excuse to invade uh, Cuba. This was the same time of Operation Mongoose when they were doing sabotage, killing people, killing their pigs, and so on and so on. To, to, to Kennedy's credit, again, though I do not support him as a leader or no leader because he supported capitalism and imperialism, but he did not want a nuclear war, so he stopped that plan. He stopped Operation Northwoods. But it was still on the sheets after he died. They never employed it in Cuba. But that kind of sabotage, that kind of line to create wars has gone on before and after. But this time it was quite different than most other times. They were willing to kill their own people. And perhaps many people in the world today, including many star, a large percentage of Amer U.S. Americans, believe the United States was willing to do something similar in 9-11. And that's another topic for another day. True. And of course, uh, I mean, as you mentioned in the book, there's the whole issue of the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which never happened, but that was used right. as a war pretext. But you, following up on those comments about Kennedy, uh, I mean, you say that you're not you know, a supporter of him per se, but you give him credit for apparently running afoul against this uh, apparatus that's uh, pushing for war and pushing right. for an invasion of Cuba and pushing for, uh, you know, you know, moving ahead with this uh, uh, nuclear program and Vietnam as well. Um, right. you, you seem to assert that, uh, you know, that the uh, the campaign in, in Southeast Asia might have gone differently had Kennedy been reelected, which points to the right. idea that Kennedy was uh, apparently taken out by elements of uh, his own, uh, elements of his own government. So that sort, sort of suggests that we're talking about an apparatus that, uh, that has a way of filtering out elements that aren't willing to go along with the program. Are we talking about an instrument here that is able to, uh, within the U.S., that is able to, um, th that has effectively taken over, that, that has no uh, yeah. connection whatsoever with uh, the U.S. people and what they consider to be uh, the, the exactly. will of the governed? Exactly. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's to me, it's beyond a doubt that the deep state led by the CIA murdered Kennedy. He, he was he was not enough their their own man in my book. Also, as I mentioned uh, to you before we started, uh, the, the, the most uh, re, uh, awarded Marine soldier general in, in, in history. Uh, Smithy Butler exposed how the big capitalists, I mean, I mean, the, the biggest ones, you know, Rockefeller, GE, General Motors, DuPont, Morgan, were willing to kill FDR because they were opposed to his New Deal plan. And, and he was wanting to prevent uh, a war. Uh, he, 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 he wanted to stop the Nazis and he wanted to uh, be friendly with uh, Stalin even because they could be allies. The, the capitalist class did not want a war against uh, 
the Soviet against uh, Russia, uh, excuse me, against Germany and uh, Italy and Franco. In fact, uh, Franco's minister, major minister said without the U.S. help, U.S. capitalist help, not the government, they could not have won the war against the uh, elected Republican government. Now, that group of, of capitalists exists today. Uh, you know, uh, their same families are the major capitalists, and they have the power, not the president of the United States. It's clear what's happening with Trump. Uh, Trump did not want a war with, uh, with uh, Putin or Russia. In fact, he hasn't even started his own war yet. He's just following through with the wars that Obama, for Christ's sakes, uh, started or continued from Bush. Now, when Putin came into power, he wanted to be friends with the United States. He went fishing with the Bush, Bush president and the previous president. He told uh, Bush that the, 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 the CIA was arming terrorists in his territory and in uh, Chechuan and in Georgia. And Bush says, well, I'll look into that. Bush uh, later came back and said, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. And, uh, you know, that's the point today, too. There's nothing that Trump can do about stopping the CIA from doing whatever they want to do in the world. And they're working with the extreme fascist Zionists to create another war against uh, Iran and perhaps Russia. So that, that is, that's the force that really controls the world, uh, Pentagon and the deep state. And, you know, uh, there's there's lots and lots of evidence that they uh, stood behind or helped in one way or another 9-11. We can't get into it here, but there's a lot, a lot of evidence. And 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 what the government has eventually is said about it is totally lies, mm. just like what the Warren Commission was forced to say about the death of Kennedy. In fact, uh, the Supreme Court Justice Warren had tears in his eyes when he came out of the Oval Office with Johnson. He did not want to take on that task. But to save the state, to save the capitalist state, he allowed the lies to be told. Mm. And that's what it's all about, is that what's most important is not the individual, it's the capitalist state. Yes. So uh, the most important individuals, including perhaps one of the uh, CIA directors, Colby, was actually murdered uh, but, you know, it's hard for me to prove that in the few minutes we have. Um, Ron, I know you divide the book into the three parts. And in the second part, you largely detail uh, a lot of that history, which you know, talks about, I guess you could say, the true face of U.S. imperialism. Um, then in the third part of the book... You get into the uh, the well, basically not just the post nine eleven era, but the the Putin era itself, and and you do uh, bring up a lot of points that we've typically mentioned on this show. A lot of the concerns, or, or a lot challenging what we we've been privy to over the past few years about the uh, the the invasion of, of or the involvement in Syria, that it's somehow a uh, that there's a civil war and that. Uh, the United States is supporting democracy and that Russia is interfering. You talk about the, uh, the involvement in Ukraine. And, and I, I find that a lot of this, a lot of the material which has been covered in the mainstream media, it, it's, it's so hopelessly distorted that it, it's yeah. hard to have a, a conversation, even among well-meaning people, even people who identify as being on the left seem to be very yeah. confused 
about right. uh, what what Russia's role has been. So I, I wonder if you could clarify a little bit more about how Russia. I mean, we we hear about how Russia's involvement in Syria was uh, you know somehow you know offensive. You know that we're you know, that Russia is somehow. Like Russia and the United States are kind of like opposite sides of the same coin where they're both imperialist powers. Could you clarify exactly how Russia's involvement in Syria is not imperialist, how it is fundamentally different from you know, what the United States has been doing? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, one sentence can do it. First of all, they were invited in to help the legitimate government. You can say what you want about Assad, but of all the dictators in the Middle East, uh, which the Middle East only has dictators – uh, 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 you know, uh, he is among the most benign, uh, as was Gaddafi and as was Hussein. But at any rate, uh, he has committed errors and, and he has committed atrocities. But he invited Russia and he invited Iran to come in to help him against uh, his enemies. And his enemies are those that attack his state. And that includes the United States and Israel and sometimes Turkey. Um so, I mean, you know, they are not imperialist and they're not going to – they have no plans to take over the Syrian uh, government. They have no plans to take over territory, which the United States does, uh, and they're helping uh, weed out these terrorists. Now, there's all kinds of evidence that uh, – in fact, uh, you know, talk about journalism. Uh, one, of the, one of the greatest journalists in the history of uh, the United States is uh, – and he's no communist, is Seymour Hirsch. He, uh, he exposed the My Lai massacre. He exposed the uh, torture chambers in uh, uh, in Iraq. Uh, you know, he he is not allowed to be printed any longer. He, I think he worked as a reporter for the New York Times for 30 years. They refused to report him, use his material any longer. Uh, so does England. He uh, got information, inside information from the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the you know the War Department's uh, CIA. That uh, they know of, and this was two years ago, at least 50 times when the IS used serene gas against civilians in Syria. Uh, they use the white helmets where uh, the white helmets are only where the uh, Al Qaeda group and the IS group are, have control. You, you can't be in their areas without supporting them. Uh, the United States government, the English government, the Danish government uh, funds the white helmets. And they tell lies to have uh, Trump send over a bomb or two, you know. So uh, they're there legitimately. And, of course, we have to remember that when Gorbachev decided to stop the Soviet Union's existence, the last person he talked to before he pushed that button was, jo was George Bush. He called him up. It's in my book, you know, and they had a nice chat. And he said, I just want to let you know, my friend, that, you know, you're not going to have the Soviet Union against you any longer. The next day, he, he, he demised it. He was told by the Secretary of State that NATO would not go anywhere east. And, of course, they lied again. That's a very, important, that's a very important consideration, is that, right. uh, that, that whole idea that not one step further east. And, and right. that's, we've, we've seen that progressing uh, right through the, uh, the 1999 war on Yugoslavia, where there was that, right. uh, that breakup of, uh, of a former... Right. Right. Um, that country. Um, so just to, to move forward a little bit, because this is what maybe one of the last dominoes, uh, the 2014 coup in Ukraine, and it was a coup. 
And right. you, you, that, that, that was a critical moment because the, I think that's where we really started to see the, uh, the media and, and public relations apparatus targeting Putin as this great threat to peace. So uh, why don't you talk about that? That that or, right. You, you know, well, we have, yeah, we have to put this in the context also that it, even before the Ukraine coup, led by fascists, I mean real fascists, and anybody can check that if they want. Uh, their hero was uh, Madera, who who loved uh, to kill kill Jews. As a matter of fact, in Ukraine, he was a Hitler fan, and at any rate, the United States was surrounding Russia. You see, now just imagine. If the Soviet Union was surrounding the United States and Canada and and Mexico with uh, all kinds of weaponry and troops, uh, they've taken over three or four of the previous uh, republics of uh, uh, of the Soviet Union, including Georgia. Um, now, the, the, you know, the, the Russia is a capitalist uh, com- econ- economy that wants to be partners with the United States, and the United States has rejected that. So. They're under tremendous pressure. The Ukraine was a part of the Soviet long before the Soviet Union. It was a part of Russia for about 250 years. Uh, by an agreement with the uh, Ukrainian government uh, uh, after the end of the Soviet Union, uh, Crimean and the naval base there uh, was under uh, Russian control. And uh, 25,000 Russian troops are at that base. Now, that's the most important base in all of that area. The Ukraine lost something like two million people over a three-year war period in the Second World War. The Ukraine, for all Russians, is extremely important, and they don't want NATO to control Ukraine. Newland, uh, the U.S. major uh, so-called diplomat in the Ukraine at the time, we know that her telephone – telephone was uh, revealed i don't know how but at any rate uh, the, her conversations came out in which she boasted about how they the united states were going to put in power a new government and she named the people who would be there and they were the ones who got there she also boasted publicly that the united states had officially paid five billion dollars to help this fascist government take over and, of course, NGOs that are imperialist NGOs and, of course, this tremendous capitalist Soros. I mean, they simply were there to to buy the, the, the U, Ukraine uh, policies and to force the, the Ukraine to take on Russia. So for Christ's sakes, I mean, you know, Putin had to Putin has to defend himself. And he said, OK, that's it. I'm, I'm you know, I, I've done I've. I've 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 given in. I've given in. I haven't attacked. I haven't counterattacked. But now it's got to stop. He had already convinced Assad to give up whatever gases he had. I'm sorry. That was the next year in, in 2015. He convinced Iran to to go to do the program that Obama wanted. I mean, he has in in three occasions stopped a world war, and uh, he's a man of peace. Uh, a lot of people. On the left will argue, uh, including yourself, will argue that the uh, foreign policy is is very much dictated by imperialist ambitions and securing of natural resources and strategic and remaining top dog. But there's also another motivator, and I think it's separate, but maybe you can correct me, which is just the need to make money. We've got to have a villain to fight yeah. if we if our 
companies are going to make money, whether it's terrorists or communists or, or Russia or, or whoever. I, I wonder if you could comment on like these are are these not two different motivators or, or, or are they just too no. inextricably, inextricably linked? Exactly. Inextricably linked. I, I stated earlier, I mean, the, the major reason for war is profit. The, the major, I mean, that's the, that's the first word of the capitalist system. That's why it's innately evil. It is a greedy uh, system uh, that uh, is, you know, it's the, the competition is based upon uh, an, an, an never ending uh, uh, increase of value of, of, you know, the increasing rate of profit rate. I mean, uh, you don't have to be a Marxist to understand that. The capitalists understand it very well themselves. So uh, Marxism has explained it to so that the masses could understand it if the masses wanted to. But we have this tremendous problem of false consciousness. Um, so, yes, I mean, war is profitable. I mean, the the, the institute in Sweden, uh, SIPFRI, you know, which is a, basically a watchdog of, of weapon industry, uh, you know, shows that. I mean, I mean everything points to that. Um, there's no doubt about it. So, you know, the, the best way that you can sell weapons is by dominating other countries. Uh, you know, this little country, what I live in, it's a vassal state. Uh, it has no sovereignty. It has no balls. It buys its weapons from the United States. It buys more weapons than it can possibly use. It has no enemies. Uh, now they have uh, 27 F-35s. Uh, I mean, what the hell are they going to do with 27 F-35s? Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about. Ron, I want you to maybe give us, because uh, you have the perspective of somebody who's woken up in 61, uh, as uh, I understand it, more than half a century of experience in anti-war uh, activism. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, given this very expansive analysis that you've put out with this book and, and pulling on your own understanding and experience, what what do you see turning things around realistically? How How can we... Uh, move away from this uh, you know, onslaught of, of militarism from the U.S. Is it, uh, you know, to, is it a matter of, of supporting the, the, the competition? Or are, are, what are the factors that need to come together in order to, to turn the tide? Oh, my God. Oh, my God, my friend. I say uh, this is uh, Jesus. I, um, I'd have to be Jesus Christ to explain this. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it has to be it has to come, you know, uh, from from grassroots. It has to come from human beings, actual human beings, not robots or power elite. It has to come from workers, you know, and unemployed. It has to come from people who see what we're talking about today and they have to uh, stop. They have to stop working. They have to stop going to school. They have to just close down the system. Now, uh, they could be helped if we had. Uh, you know, socialist uh, governments elsewhere, which we don't. We, we don't have socialist governments anywhere. Uh, you know, the, the China is led by a communist party, so-called, that uh, is, is tied to the capitalist economy of the United States. Uh, their people are, are living much better, unfortunately, than they did during the, the period of so-called socialism there. And China is afraid to really, really do what they could do. And what they could do simply is pull the plug. If they took their investments out, they have 7% of the United States economy in their hands. They have, if they were real communists, they would just pull it out, and the economy would fall down overnight. 
and the economy would fall down over Canada and Europe overnight. Well, then what happens? Oh, yes. People would say, well, we'll have world war. We'll have chaos. We'll have anarchy. Yes, it's possible. But it's going to happen anyway. Uh, world war is on the rise. And, uh, uh, and, 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 and you know, we, we can't allow Iran to be invaded. Russia cannot allow that. Um, Russia did a tremendous thing the, the, just the other day, Nesk, where they showed the United States the, the new weapons they had. They, they, they surprised the United States. They, the United States didn't even know that they were building these weapons. Well, these weapons are, are like just like with a, a atomic bomb and, and the heroes of the Rosenberg heroes and, the, and, and Klaus Fuchs and uh, Ursula. They were heroes of mankind that gave information to the Soviet Union so we could have a balance of power. Well, there's somewhat of a balance of power today, but these idiots in the, the capitalist class, they think that they can take their satellites and live on the moon. I mean, they can, have, they can build castles anywhere. Uh, they, they are so arrogant that they're not afraid. Uh, well, you and I are afraid, and, and, and what we have to be able to show uh, the masses of people is that they need to be afraid and they need to fight. You know, uh, why don't they fight? Uh, I don't really know why. I guess they're afraid. I guess they want to have illusions. Uh, and this thing called American exceptionalism, which we don't have time to get into, but maybe it's the most important chapter in my book. Um, and there are other people writing about it now. It's a relatively new term, you know, becoming new, more known. It's this idea that these white Europeans who invaded the United States a couple of hundred years ago, 300 years ago, and committed genocide against the natives and, and enslaved black people in Africa, that they're better than anybody else. That still uh, exists in the United States. You've got honky, marginalized Ku Klux Klaners who can't even read and write who vote for Trump. And, uh, and they think that they're better than, than, than people around the world. You know, I don't, you know, how do you get rid of that? Yeah, it sounds uh, like there's uh, very much that strain of, of white supremacy, I would argue. Yeah. Uh, but, Ron, uh, it, it's really been a treat speaking with you, and I really appreciate your insights. Uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, yep. this book and, and for taking the time to speak with us today. You're very welcome. We've been speaking with Ron Ridunur. He is the author of the uh, 2018 book, The Russian Peace Threat, Pentagon on Alert, from Punto Press. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>